Welcome to Reimagining Liberty, a project of the unpopulist. I'm Aaron Ross Powell, and this is a show about the emancipatory and cosmopolitan case for radical social, political, and economic freedom. Deirdre McCloskey is probably my favorite contemporary liberal scholar. Her work ranges widely across disciplines, is always fascinating, and builds its defense of free markets and the open society in a deeply humane and compassionate fashion. I've talked with her on podcasts before, but today's a little different. Our topic isn't economics, but religion. Deirdre is a committed Anglican, and her next book sets out the case that religious faith is an important component of a thriving liberal society, and that those who think Christianity points in a more reactionary, illiberal direction get Christianity wrong. The place of religion, religious belief, and religiously motivated politics can be a little bit odd in a liberal pluralistic society where those the, – the metaphysical claims that drive a particular set of religious beliefs might not be widely shared but can still be motivating of political goals. Given all of that, what is the place of religious faith within a liberal order where one's faith might not be universal? Well, the conventional straightforward opinion is that of the blessed Adam Smith, um, namely that the disestablishment is the correct way to go, separation of church and state. And and I certainly agree with that. And, and as it worked out in Europe in the 18th century, that was one of the main paths to liberalism. Although, you know, bear in mind that the Anglican Church was the established religion of, uh, of England. And by established, I mean it was supported by the state. You paid whoever you were, you, 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 you paid a tithe to the local church. Um, whether or not you were Jewish or anything else. So, but, okay, so separation of, uh, of church and state is crucial. And, and you can see in earlier Christianity and in Islam, and indeed now in Israel, that the, the mixing of church and state can produce terrible results uh, from 1744 on. The House of Saud in, in Arabia was linked to Islam so tightly that um, uh, it, it had the result it has in Saudi Arabia. And then, of course, you know, obviously, uh, Iran is, is another example. But so too was earlier Christianity. Um, oddly enough, a, a, a country like like Scotland had John Knox, a ferocious Calvinist who dominated um, dominated Presbyterianism in Scotland in the 16th century, 16th and and 17th for that matter. And yet Scotland became this beacon 
of modern 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 liberalism. But there's another point, which is that religion is inevitable. I don't mean belief in God necessarily, but I mean and a belief often uninspected in some sort of transcendent. And that too can be dangerous. The nation, right? The dictatorship of the proletariat. Um, social engineering. Socialism itself. These, uh, even science can, can have this pernicious effect if it, if it, yeah, well, you 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 think of all kinds of examples of science taken as a as a religion and that allied with the state sometimes has the same evil effects of of theism allied with the state. So that is, but so the focus there is on the state and and the state as either established religion or motivated by a particular set of religion. But there is also the question of religious faith and the individual liberal citizen. Because if if you are if you are participating in the polity, um, you are at, you are either asking the state to do things, you're asking it to respect certain things, or you're asking other people that you share this national status with to behave in certain ways, restrict their behavior in certain ways, and you're basing that upon a religious a set of religious beliefs as opposed to a freestanding philosophical beliefs, which I mean there's freestanding philosophical beliefs are not as freestanding as people make them out to be, but that's know. my point. That's that's point number two. Okay. And so what you're but how do we how do we square the issue of you ought to behave in this way because I believe the following religious claims and I say I shouldn't behave in that way because I don't accept those. I know. Look, it, 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 again, it's extremely clear in modern Israel. Um, indeed, in, in the early uh, decades of the state of Israel, the religion, quotation marks, was socialism. And now, since the, the balance of power resides with these extreme um, uh, uh, versions of Judaism, it's uh, uh, theistic Convictions, ah, you're 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 violating the hundred and twelfth um, commandment in the Torah, um, and yeah, that. But but I I, I want to emphasize that second point that there are faiths that behave, and then this is a very conventional idea. It's not some really genius idea of Deirdre's, but. There are faiths of a completely secular sort that function the same way, and and but but certainly it's true in the American case, as uh, an old friend of mine, 
J.R.T.U.'s, an economic historian, pointed out a long time ago. Americans have managed to sustain, managed to have two ideas that contradict each other in their head at the same time. One is, don't tread on me. I'm a liberated individual. I get to say what I have to do. And the other is, you neighbor, <laughs> you've got to do what I say. And that's been true, as, as John pointed out, from the founding of the United States uh, in, in uh, Congregationalist Puritan New, um, uh, Massachusetts. There, there, there was both right from the early 17th uh, 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 um, century. And there was a constant tension between the two. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I, but I argue in the book that a version of liberalism, um, somewhat extreme, many would say, uh, is consistent with Christianity properly understood. So let's dig into that properly understood because there is where I think a lot of the disagreement is because we are what we one of the things that we have seen in the last several years is the rise of a or at least centering in kind of the national discourse and prominence of a particularly anti-liberal form of Christianity, either in – it takes it has an intellectual version, which is, say, the Catholic integralism. It has a almost anti-intellectualism in kind of the white Christian nationalism. Uh, but, but both of them tend to agree that Christianity, as they understand it, pushes back very hard against – the deeply sort of liberal society, the dynamic, uh, open society that that you're arguing for, very much so. I, I did a review of Patrick Denines, uh, who's a conservative uh, Catholic um, book called "Why Liberalism Failed," and my review was entitled "Why the Critics of Liberalism Failed." And a month or so ago in Harper's Magazine, Patrick and I debated, along with uh, Frank uh, Fukuyama and uh, Cornell West, on the future of liberalism. Um, And (laughs) I said to Patrick, what's your alternative? What sort of society would we have if there hadn't been the liberty movement um, since the 18th century, and it, in my view, it would be a 17th century nightmare. So I, I said to Patrick, you want to move forward into the 17th uh, century. But, by the way, there's there's also an, an anarchist or anarcho-capitalist extreme version of this. I'm forgetting his name, but he was... Among the Austrians at Auburn, uh, died a couple of years ago, and was a Protestant, but <laughs> wanted to set up a theocracy, uh, which, which I find just... 
So, yes, these movements, um, you know, it, it's rather similar to, now this makes what, what I'm calling point number two again, it's rather similar to the uh, atheism, atheistic faith in, in communism and the drift away in mild, mildly socialist countries like Sweden, away from churches. The, the churches in Sweden and much of, of Europe now are empty. And, and I don't believe that's necessary or even obvious. Uh, but the reason they're empty is often, well, that there are substitute faiths. For example, in Sweden, the substitute faith is environmentalism. Um, Theta, what's her name, is a good extreme example of this. Um, and in any case, there is a conviction which the new atheists, so-called, um, uh, stress all the time and delight in pointing out that Christianity has resulted in many terrible pogroms and, and crusades and other evils and, and uh, 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 what's it called, um, inquisitions. So you can kind of see why a modern person declares herself to be anti-religious. Because her version of what religion is is a kind of simple-minded, um, the Baltimore Catechism and the, and the nuns to enforce it. And I say it doesn't have to be simple-minded. It can be my wonderful Anglicanism <laughs> uh, with markets. With uh, wh what I argue is that the theological debates about about liberty of the will are paralleled by debates about liberty in um, in markets. So there's a ton to unpack there, and I just have like all of these follow up questions that lead in different directions, um, and I'm not sure which to ask first. But let me ask what I hope is a short and kind of clarifying point. So when you talk about religion in this way and and the rise of secularism as uh, something we shouldn't necessarily be excited about and you talk about yeah, the empty churches and praise of right um, does religion in the positive sense that you mean it need or entail institutions because what we've seen like in the US is a radical decline in, say, church attendance, like the church as people's, that's the way that they express their religious faith or connect to it, um, and, and a rise of people who say they're non-religious, but they're also, they say they're, they're say, spiritual, um, or they have, they have religious things, but it's non, it's becoming increasingly non-institutional. I've always found that to be a kind of uh, soft-minded way of talking, although a lot of people talk this way. And in fact, there's 
a good deal of controversy about whether there has been a decline of even church attendance. Um, in Brazil, uh, once a solidly Catholic country, one third of the population are now evangelical Protestants. Um, a lot of the support for for uh, Bolsonaro in Brazil, as for Trump in the United States, comes from evangelicals who go to church every Sunday and probably more. Um, so it's it's not obvious that there's we we sort of tend to look at it from our little perspective, but you know Korea is a very Christian country now and once was um, Buddhist or Taoist or something. So it's, I wouldn't get, I wouldn't put too much emphasis on this claim of declining church attendance and secularization, particularly because of point two, that there are spiritual substitutes or substitutes for the, the transcendent, the, the, the nation being one of the obvious ones. Uh, it's, it's sort of like sports teams, you know, you support the Chicago Cubs and that, that becomes very much a part of your identity and it's like a religion. People laugh about it being a religion, but, you know, I know people whose whole lives are tied up in the Cubs, those poor, sad people. <laughs> and then going back to what you said in your debate with Deneen, among others in um, in Harper's, is is Deneen wrong because the kind of religiously motivated illiberalism he has in mind would produce results in the world that are far worse than what he imagines them to be, that basically a liberalism doesn't work? Or is he wrong because he's getting Christianity wrong, that he thinks Christianity points at this, but it actually points at what you have in mind? I think I would say that that's a very nice way of expressing it, and I'd say both. <laughs> he makes both mistakes. Um, uh, the kind of clericalism, you might call it, that he, he's in favor of. And a lot of Catholic social teaching folks are in favor of is, in my opinion, a hideous outcome. I mean, Patrick wants women to go back into the kitchen. And he actually does. It, it, uh, it's like the... Uh, Nazi formula, um, church of children and kitchen. And so, but, but then he also, the other is true too, that um, what, what, I've lost track of what your other interesting pair is. One is that this clericalism leads to a hideous society. The other is just taking the core beliefs of Christianity, does Christianity point to that kind of, even if yeah, that yeah, world yeah. worked, would it stand? And my answer is, my answer is an emphatic and lengthy no. Um, I, I believe, you know, obviously there's a version of Christianity or Judaism or 
Islam that points this way to this authoritarianism or um, hierarchies of men and women and blah, blah, blah. But there's the, the, the faith, the love gospel of Jesus is, is not point, does not point this way, in my opinion. Uh, and um, in progressive versions, mildly progressive, I'll say, they're not necessarily socialist, but a, a lot of my Anglican or Episcopalian um, co-religionists are just nice people. Um, not all of them. Some of them are not so nice, but most of them, uh, when they're in church, especially, they're on their good behavior. And they they perform a Christianity which is generous and tolerant and open to argument, um, curious, scholarly. We, we uh, Anglicans, especially in the English-speaking world, are notorious for having book discussion groups. We're very bookish. <laughs> so the argument, the ultimate argument then is, is it that Christianity, rightly understood, is this religion of love and that that love manifests as kind of an equal respect and dignity yeah. for others. And, and, and it, it results in the, this is what irritates my friends. It re results in a market society. That market societies, not top-down coerced economies, are fit with the gospel of love. There's a kind of mild sort of love that's that's exhibited in market relationships. Even very uh, hands-off um, relationships. Look, you, you go to your grocery store that you habitually go to and you you keep saying, seeing the same butcher and the same clerk, and they've, you know, in such what the French in the 18th century called sweet commerce makes you into little friends, uh, and that kind of, um, whereas you know, central planning socialism does not make you into little. Into little friends. Yeah, that fits with like, my frustration that I often have with my friends on the progressive left, or even yeah. say like the Marxist. I have left. lots of friends, by the way. Having been one of them myself, I can kind of understand their their emotions and and some of their alleged thoughts. And uh, I I still have very many socialist friends. Yeah, and and it is that like this is if i if i'm going to kind of oversimplify one way to distinguish i think like the hard right like the denine style is the i think the actual motivations and the ends that they aim at are morally corrupt in a lot of ways like the, the who, who, who they they being case. like the hard right 
like yeah, Deneen's yeah, style, like the world that Deneen wants is morally bad. Um, the the left tends to be much more laudable in their goals and motivations and values, but the the underlying frustration that I have is in I think seeing the way that you operationalize that that sense of love, that sense of fellow feeling is through the state. Is the state is how That's we exactly right. give to each fact, other. The 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 another person in this four person conversation we had with Harper in Harper's, which was then published in the magazine, was this wonderful man who I hadn't met before, um, Cornell West, who truly I mean, everyone who knows Cornell knows that he's a sweetie pie. He's a very nice man and very generous and open and loving. You know, he comes up to me. He's never met me before. And he says, oh, Deirdre. And he hugs me. You know, he's a socialist and he knows that I'm not. I'm a, I'm a liberal. And, and yet he, and he's, and he's willing to engage with Patrick, who was once a colleague of his at Princeton. And, uh, you know, and, and, and uh, willing to engage with me or Frank Fukuyama. In a in an open spirited way, uh, unlike Patrick Deneen, who's kind of nasty to tell you the truth. Um, but <laughs> you're right. Cornell's premises about how to help the poor are just completely wrong. He's he wants to help the poor by giving them more money, by coercing other people to do things that he thinks will help the poor, like. I'll take a conventional example, the minimum wage, which screws very poor people. But that's that's not the only one. He would surely believe, as so many on the left, even the mild left like uh, uh, um, Biden, that that protectionism, international trade restrictions are good for poor people. No, they're not. They're terrible for poor people, and I, I expect that 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 uh, that Cornell would kind of assume that um, occupational la, 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 licensing, which is a terribly oppressive burden on poor people, is just a fine idea. And this is even a guy, and he's black, of course, who who must realize that making people who braid hair for a living get a state license is really a, a, a nasty thing to do to poor people. So, you know, I, 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 as you said, it's out of, out of the sweetest of motives, uh, you know, comes some really nasty results, zoning, trade unions. I'm always the only person in the room who could become a union electrician in the state of Michigan if this academic public intellectual thing of mine doesn't work out. I'm going to go be, I'm going to go be an apprentice electrician because my grandfather, my uncle Joe, and my, uh, and my cousin Phil were all union electricians in Michigan, and that's the only way you get to be a union electrician. Sorry, you can't. <laughs> so, you know, these are terrible, uh, terrible things, but that's what they think are good. 
let me pick up on this idea of love in a liberal society and the and the necessity or centrality of that because a lot of people on on our side so free market economics kinds of people tend not to make love part of their argument their argument is is either pure like utility or it is pure like self interest that that's that self interest and and basically coupled with kind of toleration are the motivating values and, of a commercial society and by the way their third characteristic is that they're all atheists sometimes vocal atheists who's that fellow if if he didn't exist he'd have to be invented it george mason the economist who um takes this exactly this line you're talking about a hard-nosed libertarian line but he's also an atheist i forget he's a professor at george mason and and it's so it's interesting you bringing this up because in my own my own work my project lately so i am i am an atheist but i am a also very committed buddhist and most, well, then you're most not, Buddhists well, are. You're, you're, are I understand. I understand that that, that Buddhism isn't like Abrahamic. Um, yeah, I, I understand that. But but one of it's my not necessarily theistic, right? So one of my like recent projects um, has been making the case. So in in the Buddhist faith or philosophy, uh, there's what are called the the sublime at the four sublime attitudes. The Brahma Viharos that you cultivate, and among those are loving kindness or loving friendliness, which maps on, I think, a lot to the kind of like market, like love in the marketplace that you're talking about, and and arguing for the necessity of those kinds of feelings, both as a way to sustain to help people participate in a liberal society, but also to protect liberalism against. And it just it seems like that sort of empathetic fellow feeling compassion towards others has been pushed out of the way that we make the case for markets and that's had i think that's had two effects one is that it has meant that particularly people on the left who would be sympathetic to our you know to the arguments say those guys don't those guys are kind of unfeeling they're like Randian is would be the like the stereotype of it, but the other thing is that it has it has basically seeded arguments from care and fellow concern to the I left. I agree with you, and that's one of the reasons I wrote the book, and and I've been I've been pounding on this for twenty years now that <laughs> that a free society requires love and encourages love. In a way that a centrally planned authoritarian society does not. In fact, it kills love, um, except love of a kind of very narrow sort where you might love your husband, but you also might turn him into the party for deviationism. Um, and the, it's 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 irritating to me that this wonderful gospel of love or the Jewish um, 
focus on this this business deal between Jehovah and the Jewish people or Islam's uh, creation out of a merchant of Mecca. They don't get that Jesus lived in a commercial society and he didn't he didn't insist that all the fishermen drop their nets and follow him. And, and on and on and on, they, they're, the two can be brought together. And the other point you're making is that if you don't bring them together, you've seeded the emotional case for a free society to the, the centralizers. Now, you know, I think a lot, of my, a lot of my friends on the left, my modern friends on the left, they're not party line Stalinists. In fact, I wouldn't want to have a friend who's a party line Stalinist. And they believe that there's some, I don't know, some third thing that we can do that it will, we'll have co-ops and we'll buy uh, jug wine and some tofu from the co-op and drive an old Volvo. And that'll be our way of getting in between the market that, oh, I hate the market, even though they, they use it every day. And on the other hand, the state. I have a friend, a wonderfully learned and imaginative Marxist economist named Jack Amarillo. And Jack said to me once, I hate the market. He said, Jack, you don't hate the market. You, your house is filled with lovely antique furniture that you bought in a market with your modest academic salary that you also earn in a market. Jack says, I don't care. I hate the market. Well, Jack, hate and the market don't have to go together. Is Do you think that so developing, cultivating, coming to embrace this kind of love, fellow feeling, compassion, sympathetic joy, whatever we might happen to label it, um, that that religious faith is necessary for doing so at some like at religious faith at some kind of like socially sufficient level? No, I no, I I don't think so. I know lots of hopelessly <laughs> atheistic people um who are um nonetheless have a moral center and uh do show the gospel of love in their lives without really knowing that they are. Um, it's a lot easier, though, to do it in community. I mean, to go back to an earlier issue, see, people say, I'm spiritual, but I don't belong to any church. Well, okay, maybe gr a great faith person um, uh, Simone Vi or something can can do it without being in a church, but we ordinary people we need to do it together on a journey and go to church or go go, go, go to the synagogue or the or the temple, and, and that 
educates us and keeps us on the on the path because faith is not a theorem i said this other the other day to an atheist liberal friend of mine and he, he said well i tried to believe in god but i couldn't do it well you know you you, you can work and and come to believe six impossible things before breakfast, but faith is not propositional. Faith, to put it in kind of California terms, is a journey. Belief in English is cognate, is a cousin of the word leaf, the old, somewhat obscure word. I would leaf uh, go with you to town. I would prefer to go with you to town. And love, leaf, um, belief, beloved are all from the same root, which means following faithfully. It, it um, in a in a hierarchical aristocratic society, you you pledge. Your troth, and by the way, troth and truth are the same word. Uh, you you pledge your troth to your beloved master, your your chief, and and so until really the 17th century, that birth of crazy rationalism in Europe, um, people understood that. Christianity, say, was a journey, not a set of, not, not, not dogma, not, a, not, as I said, uh, the Baltimore Catechism and the nuns to enforce it, but a, uh, a commitment to working on it. As my friend didn't understand, he thought, well, you work on the ontological argument, and then you suddenly um, believe Christianity, and that—that's just not how, how you get it. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a similar in in Buddhism. There's the parable of the raft, which is we have all of this doctrine, the Dharma, and so on, um, but it's just a raft, and a raft is something you. Get, you use to get from one side of the river to the other, but then you don't pick it up and carry it with you when you get there. And I was also, you talk about like the, yeah, the need for this community. That's another, um, one of my favorite lines from the early Buddhist texts is when the Buddha says, admirable friendship, admirable companionship, admirable camaraderie is the whole of the holy life. And it's just having, like, so having that community. Um, and so, I think you're right. Like the the decline in seeing faith as something that we do together undercuts the the cultivation of that. But at the same time, this is this is hard looking out at the world. Let's say, like looking out at the United States as we see it now, the argument you are making to if I am like a a young person who is thinking about religious faith, its relationship to liberalism, how it can inform my life, and I have a set of liberal values. 
so much of what we're seeing of, say, Christianity in the U.S. looks very um, in conflict with that. Like the way that it – so it is the Deneens. It is the white Christian nationalists. It is the the churches talking about groomers. It's, it is something that looks like if, if I am a – someone possessing liberal virtues, it's very reasonable for me to say I want absolutely nothing to do with that. Well, I, and that, that's the trouble. It's the – you know, if, you're, if your idea of Christianity is Jimmy Swaggart, to take an old case, or is the conservative – extremely conservative and simple-minded Catholicism of this character – Michael Knowles, with whom I'm supposed to debate in a couple of weeks about transgender stuff in, at the University of Pittsburgh, I, it's, it's not going to come off. I'm, I'm, I'm actually not going to do it. Um, but it, his is just a hateful, it's, you know, it's Christianity as hate, <laughs> which is very bizarre. There's this formula, of course, Hate the sin, love the sinner, and that's just that's just nonsense. I mean, if you if you hate the sin, you can't. You know, and by sin you mean well, let's take an extreme case, which is harder to defend than say just transgenderism, uh, uh, abortion. Uh, you hate abortion, but you love the abortionist. What what what? what no, they don't. So these people are rejecting the gospel of love, and they ought to be ashamed of themselves, is my opinion. And then, they, then of course, contrary to their alleged conservatism, they want to bring the state in to enforce their opinions. So what do you do about that? As someone who sees, believes strongly in the value of Christianity, including the value of Christianity to a liberal society, and we can broaden this out to just the value of a healthy religious faith to a liberal society. Well, as, as Buddha said, this good companion business, he was against the lonely asceticism that he was offered in, in, in South Asia. You, you go and you go into the forest and you don't ever talk to anyone and you don't eat anything. But that, that's not Buddhism. So what do, we, what do we do about that in the current environment? Like how do we start to bring this back and to tie – I mean the obvious answer is everyone should go read your book – but outside of that, right? Like, how do we start to crack this awfully difficult nut? Well, I, I think we need to appeal to the heart as well as the head. I wish maybe you can come up with his name. This notorious and in some ways wonderful professor, George Mason, whose name's escaping me just now, who is actually very willing to debate with people about atheism. And comes up with uh, he he he's the one who talked about the irrational voter. Uh, Brian Kaplan. Yes, Brian Kaplan is who I'm thinking of, and I, 
you know, I'm I'm not against Brian Kaplan, but I am against Brian Kaplan. If you see what I mean, not not personally against him, but against his uh, his relentless appeal to the head instead of the heart. Um, we we uh, the, the 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 left and indeed the right, the nationalist right and the socialist left both appeal to the heart. As a former um, folky back in the 1960s, I know more socialist songs than any of my socialist friends. We had a faculty union at the University of Illinois at Chicago, and I joined the union, and my my friends in English and history were just delighted. And uh, we had a day of, of picketing, and I was teaching them union songs, which they didn't know. Uh, I walked the walk the picket line against the stupid administration. So uh, songs, <laughs> movies, rock music, um, country music, rock music, like jazz in the old days, is a performance of liberty, which I don't think is sufficiently uh, appreciated by are more stuffy, classical, liberal friends. They like ballet and orchestras, which I, I do too, but they don't realize that ballet and orchestra were very popular with the Soviets, with the USSR, and they hated jazz. Because jazz is improvisation, it's like the marketplace. No, 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 no. We got to have it planned. It's got to be top down. There's got to be a, a, a choreographer or a conductor. So we we and and the other thing to do is what I'm insisting on, and a few others of us, not too many, are insisting on, which is that um, Christianity or Judaism, or Islam, or Buddhism, or whatever your Zoroastrianism, or, or for that matter, um, animism, <laughs> uh, are consistent with a loving market. Jeffrey Tucker has a nice collection of his essays, and, and the, the collection is called The Market Loves You, and you should love it back. And that's, that's about right. Thank you for listening to Reimagining Liberty. If you enjoy this show, please take a moment to rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. You can also join our Discord listener community and book club by following the link in the show notes. Reimagining Liberty is a project of the Unpopulist and is produced by Landry Ayers. 